0: Everyone knows the star of the hit movie Top Gun was the F-14, but do you know which Western fighter starred across from the Tomcat as its nemesis? This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, retired U.S. Navy Reserve Commander Paco Kirichi, mastermind of the naval aviation-themed documentary Speed and Angels, joins us to discuss that aircraft, including the time he was nearly killed in one.
1: So I was going off into the gravel, and I shut the engines down. And right as I was about to slide off, uh, I got a little left side slip, the left main mount dug in, the plane kind of heaved up on its side, paused for a second, and then flipped over. And then the canopy glass shattered, and I was upside down with this plexiglass dagger in my neck. (laughs) Let's look at this car.
2: Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here are your hosts, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots, Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair.
0: Sunshine, welcome back. What's up, dude?
3: Thanks, Jello. whole lot of nothing. How about you?
0: Oh, man. Life is good. Just still same old, same old. But, man, what about episode 42 of the F-14? That thing rocked it.
3: Dude, epic, venerable F-14 and uh, quite impressed with the uh, fan responses we got.
0: Fan responses were fantastic, actually, and the feedback that I received was they loved the four-way discussion with the bantering, they loved the audio, and that's thanks to our friends here at a local studio, and they loved a lot of the, like, Bic pen lid tricks and workarounds, and so we're going to take all that on board, and I think we need to make our future interviews more like that.
3: That's a great idea.
0: Cool. Well, I think everyone just loves the F-14 anyway. And this week on episode 43, we have the F-14's nemesis, at least in the movie Top Gun. And that is the F-5. And we will get to that interview with our guest Paco in just a little bit. But as always, some announcements and listener questions. What do you think?
3: Sounds like a plan.
0: Okay, cool. Well, let's see. First up is Patreon. We've had a very busy week. We have new division leads, John Clark, David Penny, and a person who, instead of being recognized, would like to donate this in honor of a McDonnell Douglas engineer, Mr. Mike Watkins. We also have Patreon strike leads, Eric Brinkman, Chris Delwo, and Stephen, or Stefan, maybe, Coate. And then we have a new Patreon Airboss and Sunshine. If you recall, the Airboss, that's like the kingpin. There's only so many of those. Absolutely. And that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of help. And that is Joshua P. Walden. And by the way, Joshua is also an extreme model builder. And we'll talk more about that in the future. But he might just be building a model for the show that we could possibly raffle off or give away later.
3: Oh, is there any way we could show some photos of progress? Ooh.
0: Good idea. Well, we have some photos on there. In fact, he's going to customize it, Sunshine. There might be our names on it, you and me. And depending on who talks to him last, I suppose we'll put the name either on the front seat or the back seat.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Now there's two S's in Sunshine, fellas. (laughs) Ah, Very
0: good. Yeah, that's right. Nice. Well, thank you
3: very much, gents. And thank you, Joshua.
0: Oh, for sure. All right. Well, let's get into the listener questions. You want to take this
3: first one? Yeah, you betcha. So uh, Patreon division lead Peter Lee asks... Why is having a college degree a hard requirement to become an officer in the armed forces in order to start down the path of becoming a fighter pilot? Isn't there some other means of evaluating a person's educational aptitude? I only have my high school diploma with some college coursework completed, and I have gone on to have a pretty successful career working for a Fortune 500 company. I have to wonder how many candidates would potentially qualify to become a pilot if the college degree requirement was recommended as opposed to being required. Do you want to take that, Jello?
0: Yeah, that's a good one. I, you know, I think of this as kind of a self screening process. In other words, if you want military officers to have a certain level of education, number one, but also a certain level of drive, well, then those who can make it through a four year degree and earn a college degree are the ones that you're going to choose from because they have proven that they can do it. And as such, then have met, arguably an arbitrary requirement, but at least it distinguishes them from the rest. But also, I don't know about you, Sunshine, of course, you went to the boat school. But for me, I did a lot of growing up at college, I learned a lot of things, not just the different courses and the work in those courses. But I learned a lot about myself and dealing with others and being organized. And so I just think it's a very obvious, logical requirement. And it helps kind of screen those out who are willing to do it versus those who aren't. Adam,
3: what are your thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree with you, Joe. It seems like historically the kind of our culture here in America has thought of a college degree as being a signal of both kind of strong critical thinking as well as communication skills, kind of the polished stuff that you need for upper level management. But uh, you know what? Honestly, there was a recent Brookings Institute study that shows that college is uh, so accessible nowadays that it does isn't really as good of an indicator as it used to be. So, Take it for what it's worth, but that's still one of the hard and fast requirements for being an officer.
0: Yeah, I agree with that because I know plenty of people, including my brothers, who, like Peter, don't have actual four year degrees, but are still very successful. So I'm certainly not going to say you're not going to be successful without the degree. But for something as large as the military, again, I just think it makes it very simple to say, hey, this is just a requirement to perform at this level. And oh, by the way, the airlines do the same thing for airline pilots. And so it just, To me, it seems logical. So, awesome. All right. Next, let's take a phone call.
4: Hey, Joe and Sunshine. Uh, Greetings from Blighty. This is uh, Jim Hearson. Uh, Just saying I love the show. It really uses my commute. and The content is really spot on. So, I've got some random scattering of questions that I'd like to just run by you today, if that's okay. Um, First one up, ACM, uh, did you two guys ever duke it out? If so, who came out on top? And if you never did, then who would? So I don't know if you want to put a whole episode to one side just to discuss that one. Uh, second one on the, I uh, understand you've got the Blue Angels, or representative of the Blue Angels joining the show, hopefully shortly. i uh, read somewhere that they uh, have some quite extreme trim bias settings. I'm not sure which axis, but interested to know the uh, rationale behind that and what and whether that translates into uh, any operational considerations out in the fleet. Um, Negative G, what is the limiting factor? Is it the pink squishy body in the seat or is it the airframe? Uh, one for sunshine, uh, aircraft design, if ever you get onto the F-4, interested to know um, we've got dihedral wingtips and anhedral stabilators, so quite interested to have an explanation on that. And finally, um, endurance, uh, what is the limiting factor? Is it the actual uh, uh, pilot's butt on the uh, hard ejection seat, or is it piddle packs, or is it uh, oxygen, or what have you? Uh, but interested to know um, the answers to that. Oh, and finally, footnote the Royal Air Force Aerobatic Team, the Red Arrows, are visiting North America this year, so if they're appearing to you. Check them out, they fly the Union Jack with a lot of pride and precision. Anyway, uh, love the show. Uh, look forward to hearing uh, some responses hopefully soon. Okay, take care. Thanks. Bye.
0: All right, Jim. Several parts on that one there, Sunshine. Let's see. First, he wants to know if we ever dog fought, I guess would be the word. Is, is that now, the
3: past tense? Yeah. Dog fought. I guess. Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Dog
0: fought. Well, no. We, we didn't know each other before we ended up at our what turned out to be twilight jobs in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And in that job, we never actually even flew formation, let alone fought off each other. I didn't fly formation with anyone for the last two years of my career.
3: No, we really didn't. But Jello, how was your neck? during your Depot tour.
0: Uh, It didn't feel too bad, except that I was just continuing to age anyway.
3: (laughs) Okay, and you you probably would have won, to be honest with you. Lose lose the fight. I did win because
0: there was one flight that we had, and I just threw a video of this on Instagram recently, where I was in the back seat. So I was at your 6 o'clock the whole time, dude. You were getting getting gunned.
3: You were inside of my control zone, dude.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Disturbing, but yeah, who knows. I mean, when we were younger, I'm sure it would have been a very even match. But anyway, uh, that's a good one.
3: Well, yeah, hats off. I defer to you, Jello, and that you're the Top Gun grad, so I think you would have beaten me, and as the TPS grad, I could have built a one heck of a PowerPoint presentation explaining exactly why.
0: <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I was never all that good anyway. But anyway, <laughs> hey, with this second question there with the Blue Angels, you, and not to give too much away about the show, but right. you might have some recent exposure to this one, so why don't you take that part?
3: yeah so i got to hang out with a good buddy of mine who's a former blue angel skipper and he Uh mentioned he talked to me about the artificial feel spring so that spring is going to be an aftermarket if you will attachment to the stick and it's got four positions so it provides additional tension that that goes anywhere from roughly about five pounds up to about 30 pounds and that that additional tension is going to be huge when it takes out it's going to take out the free play of the stick so it's uh Allows for very minute or minor muscular control of the stick, which is going to be huge when you got that real close 18 inch formation.
0: Right. So in other words, when they're flying together very closely, instead of the stick, which is kind of squishy, if you'll excuse the term. Yeah, it is now fluffy. Yeah, right. A little bit. I mean, relatively. But yep. now they've got the stick pressure. And as they're holding that off, and I've heard they really have to ice down afterwards. But in holding it off, it creates that tension. And they can be very precise with the stick. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, we'll talk more about that when he uh, comes up on a future episode, right?
3: Sounds good. Yeah, I think the blues actually call them like squeeze corrections, but absolutely.
0: Oh, cool. All right. And then the negative G, I just think of this as, well, first off, in an aircraft not designed to fly at long term, in negative G, you have oil and other fluid limits. You don't want to have air get in the system. And then as far as the body goes, certainly we talked in episode six about pulling negative G's or pushing, I suppose. And and if you do too many, it can be damaging to your eyes and your brain. But I think, can't you virtually hang upside down at negative one G for indefinite period of time?
3: I think so, Jill. Yeah. But for me, the limiting factor is just like you said, going to be the capillaries, probably in the eyeballs. That's the most painful.
0: See, I can always count on you to bring out the technical term. <laughs> I just sit here talking vagaries. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Now, what about the F4? Let's see. I think we talked about this recently, didn't we?
3: Yes, we did. So, um, Jim, if you get a chance to go to YouTube, look up the video. It's our first or inaugural deep dive. We're going to talk about the dihedral effect. And that's going to Ah. be evident. Yeah, that's evident both on the empennage of the F4 with the, the control surfaces back there and also on the wing tips itself. So that dihedral effect is going to lend itself to a lot of positive lateral static stability. And I'll just leave it to Jim. Why don't you go to YouTube?
0: Well, to be fair, I believe he submitted this question before we did our first deep dive. We are a little backed up on listener questions, but we're trying to work through them. And finally, he asked about the Red Arrows coming to the States. I'm looking forward to that. I don't know if I'll be able to make it, but if I can, I sure look forward to seeing them.
3: Yeah, likewise. I'm excited. I've never seen them in person.
0: Cool. And I believe they fly
3: the hawk. Indeed, they do. All right. Sunshine, you want to take this last one? You bet. So from Mark Milligan, Mark asks, what does the entry level pay for an aviator and how much does it ramp up? I assume there are some perks with this in that housing allowances and benefits are not deducted or taxed, like we all have to deal with in the commercial world. Jello, what do you think?
0: Yeah, good question, Mark. Well, I think that You have public pay charts, and we can leave a link to them in the show notes if you'd like, that talk about your rank versus your number of years of service. And the higher you climb in both categories, the more your pay increases. But I think right now for an 01, which is an ensign just starting off in flight school, For less than two years in service, I believe it's about $3,100 a month in base pay, and that is what you're taxed on. Now, you get allowances for food and for housing, and those are not taxed. And then, of course, you have special privileges like virtually free medical. You have very low-cost life insurance and, of course, privileges at the exchange and commissary, which are like a department store and a grocery store. And at some point, Sunshine, they start giving you flight pay. I think it's when, what, you check into your first training squadron that actually has flying involved, not just the academics. And that ramps up over time because what they want to do is incentivize you to stick around and make a career out of this. And then, believe it or not, it starts ramping down just after you've gotten used to it for most of your career. And it starts going away. And by the time I retired, it had almost gone completely away. So I was getting, effectively, a pay cut every year. But... Yeah, I don't think most people join for the money. I think they join for the fun. I don't know. What do you got to add there?
3: Uh, yeah. So, Joe, you're spot on, obviously. And, and 01, under two years, gets around 3100 a month. And then the BAH, that basic allowance for housing, is going to be geographically specific. So for San Diego, it's 2400 Flight pay initially is 150 A little food money in there. And you get about 5700 a month, which turns out to be about 69000 a year. And then, as you said, it, it creeps up. and that fly pay actually kind of uh, peaks, if you will, at $1,000 a month. And then you and I, as we retired, it was down to 700 and it eventually dwindles to 450
0: a month. Yes, that's right. Okay. So on that 69-ish, I forget what you said already, 1,000, yeah, though, and- the, mm-hmm. they're only being taxed on maybe 40 of that effectively because some of those allowances are not taxed, like you said. Yeah. And then you said geographic. So if someone lives somewhere less costly than San Diego, let's say Oklahoma City, then they're going to get less for their housing. Is that what you're saying?
3: Yeah, it's basically, I believe that it's, based on the average rent for an area
0: okay and then i think there's also some effects on your allowances whether you are married or have dependents or not etc so anyway good question mark well sunshine i think we better probably get to the interview we've got i think a slightly longer interview than normal maybe not compared to the f-14 but you had a chance to listen uh any lead in thoughts before we get to paco
3: it's just cool to finally hear Paco, and uh, I didn't realize that uh, the movie that he helped to create. So, bravo and Paco, and I say we just uh, start the interview.
0: Sounds like a plan. Let's get to it. All right, today the Fighter Pilot Podcast is in Los Angeles, California, and we are talking the Northrop F-5 with retired United States Navy Reserve Commander Paco Kirichi. Paco, welcome to the show, buddy. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, we are going to hear about the F-5, but first let's hear about you. Where are you from? What have you done? And what are you doing now? I am from the East
1: Coast. I moved around a little bit, but went to high school in Rochester, New York, Okay. and then uh, went to Boston University on the ROTC scholarship. And uh, out of there, I uh, got accepted into the flight program in the late 80s. It was a great, okay. time, great time to be alive, fog All of mirror, right. and, yep. uh, <laughs> and go fly jets. Right after Top Gun. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, went down to flight school, uh, managed to go to Corpus Christi, Kingsville for intermediate and advanced, and then selected for A6s, flew A6s for a few years until my squadron got decommissioned and then uh, transitioned over to the F-14 and flew that uh, for another few years. Um, And at that point, I had 10 years in the Navy, and it was time to kind of make a decision. So uh, for family reasons, got out and uh, thought I'd never fly again uh, hmm. at least uh not fighters. Okay. And uh a friend of mine that I was in 213 with uh, called me up and said, "Hey, VFC 13 is taking applications to go fly, you know, the F5 as sure. serviced. and I could not put my package together fast enough. It had been <laughs> 9 months. Uh, uh, my hands were shaking, yeah, I was right. cold sweats. And so I did that. I flew F5s for uh, another 10 years and it was spectacular. I mean, I just had the best time up there." So Okay. And I retired out of Fallon as a reservist. I didn't have to live in Fallon, but uh, I went there at least four to seven days a month for 10 years. Okay, which
0: means you spent a lot of time in the officer's club. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's where I... All uh... right, and so you hung that up at some point. What have you been doing parallel to that since? Uh,
1: when I got out of active duty, I got hired by the airlines, and I've been uh, an airline pilot for... 22 years now, a long wow. time. It's it's hard to say because I don't feel that old. but No, well, I don't
0: look that old either. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's good, man. So you're sitting left seat and flying good routes, I hope, and uh, you're living the dream. Yeah. Well, so in addition to the story you're about to tell us about Top Gun, you had a little dipping of your toe in Hollywood anyway, didn't you? Aren't you responsible or at least involved with a certain movie I bet the listener is familiar with? I am. Or documentary, I guess?
1: yeah. So I uh, created and produced Speed and Angels, which is a naval aviation documentary. Mm-hmm. And I did that concurrent with my last few years as a reservist. could kind of see the end coming and, you know, just wanted to tell that story. I think much like yourself, you know, it's like yeah. this incredible world that we're super proud of. And um, it's difficult for outsiders to know what we really do and how really cool and fantastic and how great the people are and the flying. It's It's not like the movie Top Gun, which is just so full of cheese that, you know, (laughs) it makes us actual aviators, uh, you know, makes our skin crawl a little bit. We have
0: sliced the cheese on this (laughs) program many times, so you don't have to uh, belabor that, but yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I was really motivated to tell that story. And and at the time, the easiest way for me to do it, uh, was to, um, to make a movie. I actually tried to write a screenplay or I did write a screenplay uh, and tried to get it chopped around in Hollywood, as you say. And when that uh, was not successful, I I decided to make the movie. I went out and raised a bunch of money, and um, a friend of mine is a, a really fabulous director. She's uh, a, a woman director in San Francisco. Pretty much the opposite demographic of, of what you would think would be somebody interested in making a movie about sure. naval aviators. And In, in <laughs> fact, when I brought it up to her, she was like, I don't know if this is for me. Uh, and I just convinced her to come out to Fallon with a camera and start filming, you know, just Around the ready room, talking to some of the guys and, uh, you know, looking at the planes sure. and the desert. And, and she just, she was smitten. She fell in love with the, cool. with the story, you know? Yeah. So.
0: All right. And so what happened, I guess we can go on a quick tangent here. What, so we mentioned Face Shot on episode two with Ferg, uh-huh. also of yeah, UFC yeah, yeah. 13 fame. And so what has happened <laughs> to Face Shot and Megan since the filming? Are they still active? They're not. They're both out of the Navy. Oh, um, on their own decisions, I hope? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't. Just the way you put that, I was worried suddenly.
1: No, not all right. at all. Um, no, they both had great careers. Um, both of them ended up as rag instructors. Megan was a Super Hornet rag instructor out in uh, Virginia Beach. Okay. and. Uh, Jay was a, a Baby Hornet instructor down in um, yeah. in Miramar. Okay, And out of those tours, they, for separate reasons, uh, decided to get out. And,
0: and We all do at some point. Yeah.
1: Neither one of them is a pilot anymore, at least not professionally. Well I know. Uh, no, it's kind of weird. Yeah. They both work in the business world. They're both very successful. Uh, I mean, I, I talk to them all the time. They're both Good. really, really great people.
0: No, that's awesome, man. And, and you still have some stuff going on, but we'll wait and save that till the end of the interview here. Okay. But yeah, very cool. I know a lot of people have enjoyed Speed and Angels, and I only watched it recently. I'm afraid to admit, but I enjoyed it as well, and it was very well done. So on Thanks. behalf of the listener, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Anyway, let's jump into the F-5, and we are titling this episode the F-5 Freedom Fighter slash Tiger II because I think it'll be our first aircraft that we're covering in our series here that has two different names depending on the particular variant, right. and let's start off with what it was designed to do. Well, the
1: F-5 Freedom Fighter, the A and B, mm-hmm. uh, were designed to be... Uh, light fighters basically that like the uh and they were designed initially to be sold to foreign military
0: yeah so that's kind of a new one for us because it wasn't so much that we designed it for use but we designed it to sell right right okay
1: yeah and um it was it was part of a program to uh, to get uh, fighters into the hands of our allies that couldn't afford you know the f fours f- at the time mm-hmm. so
0: And then in that capacity, at some point, I think someone kind of forced it down, what, the Air Force's throat a little bit? Like, hey, you're going to use these things?
1: Well, I think part of the problem was that the sales were lagging because it was an airplane that wasn't being used by the U.S. Air Forces. Uh Uh, And so foreign militaries were a little bit, you know, they were a little bit put off about buying something that was just, you know, they they thought it was a lower quality. So the U.S. Air Force ended up standing up a squadron, and then they sent it overseas uh, over to Vietnam. It was actually fairly successful, did really Mm -hmm. well. And that spurred the sales sure. of the airplane.
0: And as the nomenclature suggests, it was intended to be a fighter, but I think in Vietnam it had some success as an air-to-surface platform as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think much like the F four, which was intended to be just right. a fighter, you know, once the necessity dictated that you strap some iron bombs on the bottom of an airplane and you have a perfectly good airplane, there then it go. was. <laughs> yeah. it, it ended up being a pretty good uh, uh, air-to-ground platform sure. as well.
0: Okay. And I think at the time when they designed it, they had sort of day VMC type intercepts in mind. So not really an all-weather, No. even for that era. And you flew the A6, so you know, of course. Yep. Um, all-weather, night, et cetera. This was more of a day, good weather type aircraft.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And when we flew it in Fallon, uh, the only thing I didn't like doing in the F-5 was flying it at <laughs> night or IMC right. because it really was not designed for that. It was, right. it was a nightmare flying that.
0: Well, and on that note, we know now what it was designed to do. What does it do well? And I guess in all of our discussion today, Paco, we need to think about its operational existence, but also really kind of how we used it and use it.
1: Yep. Well, I think what it did really well um, is what it was actually designed to do. It was designed to be a a light, uh, inexpensive uh, air-to-air platform for countries that couldn't afford the the best of the best. And it, it was proliferated Around the world, and we'll get to that later, probably. But you know, dozens and dozens of countries and hundreds of these airplanes uh, were built um, by license by other countries as well. It was really an effective air-to-air platform. Right. What we, the United States, ended up using it for is an adversary airplane, uh, and it simulates the MiG 21 almost perfectly. If you right. take the VN diagrams and them. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the VN I think we've diagram. touched on
0: those on the episodes, yeah.
1: Okay. So if you if you overlap overlay the VN diagrams, they're incredibly similar. So,
0: so the turn rate, turn radius, uh, speed bleed or addition, all those different things at a certain altitude, certain fuel weight exactly. are very comparable between right. the mig 21.
1: Size the size of the airplane. That's true. So uh, it, it is an it's a perfect simulator for the mig 21. Uh and With some uh, adaptability, some tactical adaptability, you can make it simulate some of the other uh, Soviet-era fighters. But actually, the MiG-21 is is perfect.
0: Which was, for the longest time, the percentage threat for us here in the West. Exactly. Because it was a former, well, now we call it former Soviet Union, but it was Soviet Union aircraft that was proliferated to all the communist countries. And so we considered it the threat. And in fact, the Top Gun patch has a MiG-21 in the center of it. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, they haven't updated that, and I don't know that they ever will. I hope not. I read that 2,600 of these were built. Let's rattle through the different variants.
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> you got your notes handy? I've got you know. mine here. So there's the uh, F5A and B, the Freedom Fighter. Right. And um, there's the F, which was the Tiger II.
0: Any idea why they changed the name? I couldn't find any data on this. So To Tiger? Yeah.
1: It was actually after that it was named after that uh, Vietnam uh, program. So I I can't remember exactly the nickname that the Vietnamese gave the airplane, but it somehow sounded or related to Tiger. Okay. Yeah. And then the most recent variant is the F-5N, which was built by the Swiss and called something else. But once we uh, brought it over here to the U.S. for use as an adversary platform, we we gave it the uh, November nomenclature.
0: Okay. And then I read that there was an RF-5 such and such, so I guess, a reconnaissance variant. But you can slap a pod on just about anything these days.
1: Right. So I think they changed the nose cone okay. of the plane. Oh, they did and, on that one? And, yeah. Okay, not and, just a pod. and there weren't many of those built, maybe literally like a, a few... Dozen right out of the hundreds and hundreds of, or thousands of, of F5s that were right. built, just a few of them.
0: And then arguably the F20 Tiger Shark was a variant in a sense. Yep. Originally called the F5 Golf. Right. And I actually quick sea story. I actually saw Chuck Yeager fly this oh, you at a rich Crest air show. I should say China Lake. Right. Out in the desert. And I was too young to really know any better. But right. you know, here comes this airplane, it's going fast, and I'm young and impressionable, it's cool. Yeah. And someone said, Oh, that's Chuck Yeager. And I was, okay, well, that's great. Who's that? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had a chance to see that fly in the 80s out in uh, Ridgecrest. That was pretty cool. Well, Bob Hoover
1: was the test pilot for the original F5. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. There another there. another big name oh, in, the, yeah. in aviation in history. Yeah. That's right.
0: And then the T38. Right. Isn't that arguably a variant as well?
1: Uh, I guess. I mean, I think the T-38 came first. Okay. Uh, so the F-5 was adapted from the T-38 design. The Talon right? used, I think, still in the Air Force, right? They haven't replaced it yet. Uh, I think the Air the- Force
0: is, but I know NASA, for example, is still using it. We had a gentleman on the show who flies them as part of his, okay. when he's not going into space training.
1: And, and the U-2 guys still fly
0: them as well. Yeah, yeah. And
1: little known fact, it was sort of the, the basis design for the uh,
0: Hornet. That's right. So some of the features or technology was t- taken from the Northrop F five and T thirty eight and turned into the Y F seventeen, which we have discussed on this show before. Excellent. And then the foreign variants, you know, they might put a letter in front of the F or a letter after the five. Right. But if Wikipedia is to be trusted, thirty five countries at one time? Yeah, it's incredible. Including the former Soviet Union.
1: Yeah. Well, they got them, I think, from the Vietnamese once.
0: <laughs> well, so when we pulled out of Vietnam, we left, I think, about 100 or 80 or so. Yeah. Well, they, then, we,
1: they had been given to the South Vietnamese. Right. You know, when we left, we said, OK, here, take these F-5s and That's right. good luck. And then that,
0: yes. And that didn't work when the North invaded the South. Yeah. And so a handful of them found their way into the Soviet Union where they flew them for a while. Yep. And reverse engineered, as I understand. And then apparently it got too expensive to keep them flying. But I guess fair is fair. I think we've probably done something similar. Yeah, I would as imagine. Is my, <laughs> my guess, yeah.
1: <laughs> Rumor right. has it. Yeah. A- and the uh, the Iranians, I think, is probably the most interesting oh, yeah. because they, obviously, they had some uh, from the pre-revolutionary when days. When we were friends. And when mm-hmm. we were friends. Yeah. Uh, that including, uh, as well as the uh, F-14, which they still fly. And the F-4. And the F-4, right. Yeah. Uh, And I think uh, they are actually not just maintaining their F5s, but they're producing new airplanes that they're calling something totally different, but they're essentially F5s. Right. Okay.
0: Wow, I did not know that part. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, what can you tell me? On this show, we sometimes say, why does it look the way it does? And, And this is, I think... A question I came up with, for example, I never knew until someone told me that the landing gear on an A4, which I presume you flew in training. I did, yeah. uh, Was super tall because the A4 was designed to carry a nuclear bomb.
4: And at the time, the
0: bombs were really big. And then the F8 Crusader has the variable angle of incidence wing, and the F14's got the swing wings. Is there anything particular about the F5 that is? dominant in the way it looks or was designed into it, at least that you're aware of. And I don't mean that to be insulting, but I don't know (laughs) of any features. And I did tell you what the question would be. So what did you find out?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the best thing about the F5 is that it looks fast no matter where it is. If it's parked on the ramp, it looks like it's going Mach 2. But probably a design feature more specific to what you're talking about is the, uh, the Coke bottle design, as they call it. So I'm no aerospace engineer. I'm about to embarrass myself, but <laughs> it, it, the design itself allows the plane to go through the speed of sound easier. Huh that's as far as I'm going to go with that?
0: Well, i tell you what. So you and I are recording this. At some point in the future, Sunshine and I will digest this, and then he can comment afterwards on that. I'm excited to hear that. He did teach aerospace at the Academy, and he was a test pilot grad as well. So we'll have him comment after the show in the uh, follow-on notes, if you will. Perfect. You know, to your point, though, about looking fast, I have two older brothers, and when we were kids in the 80s, when Top Gun came out and all that, we used to build models down in our room at night when we were supposed to be sleeping. We'd all squeeze into one room and we loved the f5 we right. had built a couple models we hung them with fishing line from the ceiling and yeah. and i posted an image of one recently on instagram because we do something different every day and my brother out of the blue who doesn't chime in too much he's like oh man i always love that you know it kind of brought us back to those days so it does have a very interesting and fast looking design which is why it was chosen for something we'll talk about when we get to the notoriety oh, yeah. in a little bit <laughs> Um, How about the armament that it carried? And then we can talk about what it carries, which isn't a whole lot anymore. But uh, at one point, it carried a lot of different ordnance. Sure.
1: Air-to-air, it basically carried the the AIM-9. Sidewinder, right. And uh, two 20-millimeter cannons made by Colt Browning, which is kind of cool.
0: Yeah. Single (laughs) barrel, right? So they're not... Single barrel. I'm sure. I
1: never got to fire one, but I'm sure it sounded really great. I'm sure. (laughs) All right. You remember uh, how
0: many rounds? Hate to put you on the spot. Uh, it was like 250 per. Okay. Oh, so per. That's not yeah, bad. Yeah,
1: so not not a ton. Right. And I'm sure it was a pretty slow uh, rate of fire. Probably a single barrel. Single barrel sure.
0: Yeah. All right.
1: Uh, and then a variety of uh, iron bombs, uh, rockets, uh, and... Uh, Mavericks, I think.
0: Oh, did it? Okay, I think so. I know it had napalm. Saw yeah. a video of that. Well, yeah, and a, rockets, but nothing anything, real cosmic. I'm guessing like laser guided or walleyes or anything. You it's know, it, in reading
1: through it, I I saw that I think the Saudis put uh, a laser pod. So, okay. uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of detail. But if you're going to put a laser pod, you're probably going to put some sort of an LGB sure. package on that. But, sure. Yeah, mostly just iron bombs. Anything that was. You know, gravity. Right. uh, And in Vietnam,
0: that was mostly what it was. And then we've gotten away from that. Other countries, as to your point, have made various improvements to the model over the years and their own variants or built their own, as you stated. Yep. Okay.
1: And And they continue to do so. I mean, some of the the later improvements done on the airplane are pretty remarkable.
0: Right. Um, And this thing's been flying, what, almost 50 years or more, maybe? Uh, I think more. uh,
1: The... F-5 itself, I, I think, started flying in 1970. Okay. And then the the, uh, the E was a little bit after that. Right. I can't remember the exact date. No, that day. makes sense. Yeah. All
0: right, so we're coming up on its 50th anniversary and still flying here in the U.S. and yeah. elsewhere.
1: What does it carry today? Well, the way we use it here in the U.S. is uh, as an adversary. So it, it has what's called a CATAM, a uh, captive air training missile, yep. I think. That's yeah, what, we've I can...
0: referred to that here on the show before. Okay,
1: CATAM-9. Uh, and then on the, uh, I think it's the left wing tip. It's got a tax pod. Right. And then a few of the airplanes will have jamming pods, mm-hmm. internal jamming pods, uh, which are pretty effective. And then a
0: fuel tank. Not always. Not always. Yeah. So, I mean, Ideally, can, no, because right.
1: it, it changes the performance right. pretty dramatically.
0: Okay. And if you guys are going to detach somewhere, can you carry a baggage pod or anything? I never saw one. You never saw one? Okay. No. Yeah, Go it's ahead. just there was a bunch of room in uh,
1: in the turtle back. Right behind r- you. Right behind you, okay. but not. And then uh, a lot of the airplanes had. Um, the uh, the guts of the machine guns were taken out, sure. of the cannons were taken out, so you could slip a bunch of bags in oh, there cool. as well. So.
0: Bags, we'll put in air quotes. Uh, we, we had a guest on the show talking about, in the good old days, making runs for lobster and beer and other things.
1: But. I heard that. I heard that episode, <laughs> and I did that as a Stash Ensign. Did you really? I was in... Uh, <laughs> VF 43 oh, in dear. Oceana as a uh, stash, and we used to go up to Brunswick to pick up lobster every once in a while. There you go. Yeah.
0: And just again, I don't know if we've used that term, a stash ensign, meaning you were looking for a job while you waited for your name to get called for to start flight school. Yeah, and there were right. lots of us back then. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was even a stash as a as a student in 1992. Okay. And then I think the other term you threw out was tax pod. I think we've covered that before, but that's just the instrumentation pod
4: mm-hmm. that we
0: carry, just like a CADM-9, and it Beams back and forth information for the folks on the ground. Okay. Uh, let's see. How about performance? How high? How fast? How many Gs?
1: 50,000 plus, although okay. I never went anywhere near that. All right. Um, it was about a 1.5 fighter. I think I I Mach saw- Mach 1.5? Mach 1.5, right. yeah. And I saw 1.4 pretty frequently. Okay. I don't think I ever saw 1.5. And it would pull, let's see, the G limit was 7.33 but a little known fact was that the G counters in the belly didn't click over till 8.33. So there were some people who had a personal G limit of 8.1 or (laughs) 2. But yeah, and it it liked to pull G at least for the first, you know, 180 degrees of turn.
0: Right. I've fought it several times and I guess we'll get to this in a moment, but it's a capable little fighter and it's difficult to keep track of. And that's visually, and that's, that's, one of the strengths of it, as we'll get to in a moment. Absolutely. Um, oh, in fact, that is next. So small size is yep. a is a strength. What are some other strengths of the F5? The speed, I think, is a
1: significant yeah. factor. You know, if you're trying to bug out on an F5, you better really do a good job of it because it will chase you down. Sure. If it has the capability of doing that, especially like a rhino, you know, that doesn't have a, a huge ability to disengage and right. accelerate through the numbers. Especially if that
0: Super Hornet is carrying a bunch of stores that are canted out and acting as... Drag. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, there was a huge difference between fighting uh, against a rag hornet or rhino and a fleet uh, hornet
0: or rhino. Yeah, I can imagine.
1: The, you know, the first few uh, turns, as long as you kept your speed up, were, were pretty significant. You know, you could sustain, especially nose low, you could sustain a really nice uh, degrees per second. So mm-hmm. two circle flow was pretty good. Once you got slow, then you're in trouble. So. That was definitely a negative. Sounds like that's a design feature that carried
0: over to the F-18. Yeah. <laughs> that's the same thing in that. Did you ever fly the F-18? No. Yes, you never did, huh? I just got you, shot by them all the time. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> sorry. I hope it wasn't me. <laughs> I'm sure um, it was. We, we talked about difficult to visually acquire for a, for a time before AESA came and cheated. Uh, everyone does now. Maybe even difficult to acquire with some radars, theoretically, because it yeah. was so small. Small radar cross-section.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we had some tactics uh, in the squadron to you know, try to get somebody to the merge. Right like red cell stuff and Mm -hmm. some crossing and post hole, you know, MCM 3-1 as we call it.
0: Yep, which is a uh, Air Force document for some of the things we expect the threat to do. Or you guys would hide behind ridge lines out in Fallon, which we had large mountains that you guys could radar shadow yourselves behind. Or the one I always hated was uh, when you get back in the debrief and you're watching the tax replay – And lo and behold, the blue fighters and you're one of them are making your way out. And there's that wily little F5 following you the whole time. And that the fight's on. He's right there like one of your wingmen. And no one ever calls him. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) What did we call that guy? Remember the name we called him? The wild card?
1: Oh, the wild card. Yes. And all
0: we tried to do with that was test your visual lookout. Because if you're flying over enemy territory, you never know when someone might jump up behind you and start shooting you down. and inevitably it was the F5 that was back there and probably got the most kills because no one ever saw him. Right. But we would always let the fighters continue because the point will be made when we get back when they see it, which I've seen plenty of times. And, of course, you always had to tell the instructors who got used to seeing it not to call it out. Let the students uh, look, look for the wild card. All right. Now, so when weaknesses here, I think we talked about early on as a fighter operationally, some of the day limitations and the mm-hmm. radar and ordnance, et cetera. What would you say, though, for how we here, at least in the United States, employ it today? What are some weaknesses of it as an adversary?
1: I think the radar is probably the biggest weakness. Uh, no, the radar meaning? The, the lack of a, okay. of a modern radar. Okay. Um, so, so your
0: ability, let's say you and I are fighting, sorry, and... Your inability to detect me or at least have uh, situational or to, awareness? Or, or even or... to
1: spike you, to, okay. get, to, to throw a signal your way, right? I mean, right. If, if you're trying to simulate um, a real-world threat, you've got to be able to uh, emit a radar that's going to you know, force the fighters to react to it. Right. Um, so the F-5, uh, I think they're starting to consider upgrading them now, but they still don't have an ISA radar um they, they
0: just have this uh APG68 i think it is so it's is that the same one? i think the F16 has that so is that is it's it the same it's not the F16 oh, radar, so maybe that's a 66 ah oh, boy we'll have to yeah. we'll have to clean this up in the uh, post roll here yeah. but, okay so it has some radar but it's got a, point, it's got
1: a pu- basically it's got a pulse radar okay and it's We're, a range of roughly 20ish miles okay. so it's it's not really useful to simulate you know enemy radar tactics we don't have uh, raw gear although I think the f5 ns have some pretty good raw gear I was getting out of the squadron right as we were starting to pick up some ends uh, and when I was there they still hadn't been coded correctly so mm. we couldn't use raw tactics okay um, but th- I think that's important to have to be able to do is to have the bandit you know utilize raw tactics so right. that the fighters know what the their enemy aircraft is g- is going to do when they when they lock them up.
0: And let's expand on that because I don't know that that's come up before. So I think the word RAW they've gotten away from, but I think it used to mean radar and homing warning or something like that R A H W. But at any rate, all we mean there is radar warning receivers. So right. your passive sensors on your aircraft saying that, hey, there is RF energy out there that's hitting me. And oh, by the way, using some behind doors with no windows technology, hey, I think it might be this kind of radar. So we can, in some sense, get an idea of what's looking at us, right? and, and it, it can and discern the between air-to-air air and surface-to-air and a direction. Thank you. And so what you're saying here is, if I am, again, in our earlier scenario, out operating against you, your ability, when you and I get back to the debrief, to tell me that, yes, I was spiked or not, and that's the word we use for having picked up that energy, means I can either If you tell me you're spiked, then that is confirmation that I'm doing my job. If you just can't tell me, it's a limitation on your platform, and that's a bummer. So that is, in effect, a weakness on some of the F5s is your inability to tell me that in the debrief.
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure that they haven't upgraded that. Right. Uh, I hope they have. I mean, I think it's a fairly significant.
0: Okay. How about fuel? Would you call that a limitation?
1: Uh, It depends. Uh, You know, if you're just going out and doing a 1v1, you know, you have enough for... uh, you know three really good engagements, which is plenty mm-hmm. uh, in a training. Yeah, you can't
0: remember much past that, at exactly, least. Exactly, <laughs> I yeah. had a difficult time.
1: Too many turns. <laughs> That's right. And if you throw a tank on, you can go out and do, you know, 1.5 air to air, you know, yeah, big time. Yeah, right. exactly. Sorry, 1.5 mm-hmm. hours. So, I, I mean, I think it does pretty well in that environment. It's not great at it. Uh, you know, we could even double cycle every once in a while, which means we would we would have two sets of fighters come out, and in the, in the airplane would actually be able to stay airborne long right. enough to be uh, you know, a radar blip,
0: uh, something for them to shoot at. Sure. It just so. meant you had to not use the gas pedal, or in our case, the, your left hand quite as much. And exactly. If you did get to emerge and it was the exciting, fun part finally, yeah. you had to really temper it because you could burn up the whole second wave of gas in yeah. a few turns if you're not careful. Yeah, that's right. right.
1: I mean, when we were doing in-house 1v1s, we could easily be out of gas in 20 minutes. Oh, gosh. Just yeah. go up and do a quick, three quick engagements, come back in for the break, and wow. that's it. We're bingo fuel.
0: OK. How about other avionics? Uh, do you guys have now a recording system of some sort? So you can. Nope. Wow. Yeah. OK. Not even the old three-quarter inch we used to have in the early F-18s. No. Um, I'm guessing that's coming along, and I know there are some companies, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but there are some companies that also bought some foreign jets back, Mm -hmm. and they are trying to upgrade them to almost like a fourth generation standard.
1: Yep. I just got a call from a good friend of mine who is involved with that. He's going to go moonlight with him? Uh, you know, <laughs> he, that's what he called for. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, right. And he, he was giving me the sales pitch, oh. and it sounds amazing. It yeah. really does. I mean, it's it's kind of like what we were talking about with uh, some of the modern upgrades on right. the F5s. You know, you've, you throw in uh, AESA Radar, really nice uh, raw gear, whatever we the the newest nomenclature well, yeah, is. I didn't mean to call you out. But yeah. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. Uh, you know, helmet-mounted queuing system, mm-hmm. some sort of a off-bore sight, high off-bore sight, uh, CADM, and all of a sudden you've got a really, really capable airplane. Right.
0: Which is still uh, so, difficult to see. Yep. But the performance wise, I don't know if they're doing anything to the engines, but it's still going to be kind of a cat three type for sure. Speed, G, energy, bleed, and addition, et cetera.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, okay. that's that's correct.
0: But it's relatively cheap to operate. And I don't mean cheap in a pejorative term, but it's affordable.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's that's a, a big factor, I think. You also don't want uh, you know, Top Gun exists. To train up the fleet to counter like the really high-end Su-27, MiG-29 type airplanes. Right. Uh, but like you were saying earlier, the percentage threat is still something a little bit less than that. Most countries don't have huge fleets of Su-27s. One of the things I really, really loved about the F-5 uh, as a, an adversary airplane is that if you lost to the F-5, you did something wrong, and there was a really that was a great opportunity to learn. Right. You were supposed to beat that airplane, and You know, I think that's maybe more difficult if you're an adversary guy in an F-16. You're going to win maybe most of the time, right? Possibly, yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, Or even in a Hornet. Um, So it was a perfect training platform for, you know, the percentage threat. And if you lost, you could... Put that big red square on the uh, on the whiteboard and <laughs> on say
0: the, on the dead fighter, on the dead right. fighter,
1: or or at that decision point, you're like, all right, here is your BFM error, and it's right. very clear and it's very distinct, and and you should learn from this. Don't don't ever do this again. Right. Uh, you lost sight or you know, you reversed uh, in front of the the bandit, or something like that. It was it was easy to to see where you made that one. Mistake that led to
0: the... You know, and a quick tangent on that because there are magazine articles to this effect and we might at some point get a guest on here to talk about being an adversary pilot, but is there a certain element of your ego you have to put in check that if you died, that's actually good? Or do most adversary pilots accept that as part of their training that, in other words, you don't want to go out and win every time because if you do, that means the real fighters that are protecting you when you're asleep at night aren't doing their jobs. So is there an element of conflict for you that while you want to win, it's better if you lose? Or has this ever come up?
1: Absolutely. I think it goes back to my point earlier is that you could kind of fight the F5 as hard as you wanted and you still should lose, right? Right. Um, And if you – I think you would do a disservice to the student if you just let them win against an F5. Right. So you could, you know, you could be – Fighting that plane as hard as you could, and you should still lose to a hornet. Right. And if you didn't, then you had that great point to make. Right. You didn't want to win necessarily. You didn't cheer your your victories, right. um, but it was it was really nice to be able to say, "All right, here's what happened. Here's where here's where you made a mistake. You should learn from that." And uh, usually, like if you took a, a rag student out on a one v one grad hop, um, you would get three engagements usually, and they might lose on the first one and the second one they might be neutral and by the third one they they had it figured out and they were you know if not gunning you they were getting a good amram shot on you or something like that
0: yeah and that is what makes adversary pilots professional pilots because they know what they're there for and they can bring out the salient points in the debrief and if they die they can feel okay about that because that's kind of their lot in life in a sense
1: yeah absolutely
0: okay cool all right, moving on. Where would the listener have seen the F five, or what is it notorious for, <laughs> if anything?
1: Yeah, it was <laughs> absolutely. It was the MiG twenty eight in Top Gun. There you go, it painted all black and, and nefarious looking. Um, yeah, so the F five <laughs> cruised around as a MiG for for the movie and in in history now. Yes,
0: well, and so they had. I understand based on an article you sent me that we should really link to in the notes because that was a really cool article. There was a lot of stuff in there that I learned but they painted, I believe, two F5E single seats right. and an F5F two-seater. And of course, when Goose gives the guy the finger, that's a two-seater that they filmed. Right. And I, I guess there might've been some CGI in that, but at any rate, those were the MiG-28s. And so they had their notoriety as the, the bad guy. That's right. Okay. And other than that, I don't know if anywhere else it's really made any kind of I mean, it's not used in any demonstration teams that I'm aware of. I think the Swiss, the Swiss use it, oh, and, and the Iranians.
2: Oh,
1: yeah.
0: I didn't know the Iranians did air shows. Yeah, to get over there and check that out. <laughs>
2: yeah, let's go. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, only if they'll have me. All right. Well, that's yeah, that's cool. But it's not like the Snowbirds or something else where some of the foreign. Teams do choose to use their trainers, whereas we in the West seem to use our fighters. Right. But, okay. But, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think just about any listener is familiar with the movie, and so they would be familiar with the F-5 from that. And that article you sent me, again, was interesting because at the time, Top Gun used multiple different aircraft, but when they decided between the A-4 and the F-5 to be the bad guy, Mm -hmm. they decided the F-5 looked a little more sinister, and so they used it for the movie bad guy and then they use the a4 for the training bad guy like right. viper and jester and all that
1: yeah in vfc13 we always had one plane painted black
0: i think there still was when i left there back in 2015 yeah and i think it was the two seater actually yep cool yeah it was we called it fight central it's nice. the one that everybody saw <laughs> you know and a good friend of mine was the CEO at the time i really kicked myself for not getting over and getting a backseat ride in it because i've flown in so many others and just we never got around to it because it was available just about whenever. And so until right. until it became a crisis at the end and I tried to do it and he was busy or I was busy, never got it. But oh well. Is that Ferg? Uh, Ferg was there and then he turned over to Wayne Ottinger. Otto, oh, yeah. A good buddy of mine. Yeah, he's, he's – uh, I think he's still flying it actually in a new capacity as leadership for the air wing or something. Oh, nice. Anyway. All right, buddy. Well, how about a good sea story involving the aircraft? How many hours did you end up in it?
1: Just under a thousand. Just under a thousand. Yeah, okay. Like Anything harrowing or, like or
0: exciting or fun?
1: Yeah. Okay. I have a few things
0: <laughs> <laughs> that you're willing to share. I should have caveat. Sure. Yeah.
1: No, I, you know, as when you're uh, an adversary, you almost die probably once a year from somebody, you know, some student, uh, you know, turning right in front of you or something like that. Um, so I have a bunch of stories like that, but, uh, the big one for me was I had a I had a crash. I crashed in F five. Really? Yeah, and I rolled it and I almost cut my head off. <laughs> so, Did
0: you stay in it? Yeah. Oh my
1: gosh. It, it's uh it's an interesting story. I was uh, coming back from a cross country on my way back to Fallon from Moffett Field, and at the time our leadership uh, really wanted us to do practice approaches to you know validate the the uh, point of the cross country. So I decided to go into Reno. Okay, so an instrument approach instrument approach in arena although it was a beautiful day you know cavu day uh i didn't know because i couldn't pick up ATIS coming over the mountain we only had one radio in this airplane oh wow so i couldn't pick up ADIS coming over the mountains and i turned on final uh and tower told me that there were 30 knot crosswinds uh which at the time was below the the natops limit for the f5
0: did you create a limit
1: Sort of. Sorry, I'm,
0: I'm derailing your story, but you can come back to that if you yeah, want. Yeah, there
1: was a, there was a, a sad mishap after mine, oh, which, well, like right. a couple days afterwards, oh, actually oh, in Fallon, a oh uh, Hornet guy, and that created the limit. But anyway, so I'm lined up on the long runway uh, in Reno, which I think is the it's the inboard runway, and the F5 lands hellaciously fast. It's like 180 knot approach speed, and you're about 165 or so over the fence, and you touch down. Um, a little bit slower than that. So I decided to bump up my knots just a little bit. Sure. Safety margin. Safety margin. And uh, when I was about three miles out, uh, they asked me if I could sidestep over to the other runway, uh, the shorter runway, which is 9,000 feet. Okay. um, Because they had some airliners waiting to take off. Right. No big deal. 9,000 feet. You know, founds only 8,000 feet, or one of the runways there. Right. And so I came in... Uh, at about 190-ish knots, started slowing down as I was uh, approaching, and, and uh, a 737 was taking off upwind of me on the other runway, and I felt this huge burble. Start to sink, goose the power, and I floated down the runway for about a thousand feet. Still not that big a deal, although I, you know, I probably should have gone around. In well, retrospect. the plan was to do
0: a touch and go, right?
1: No, because in Reno, you have to do a full stop.
0: Oh, okay. Don't allow touch
1: and goes on an All instrument right. approach. Practice instrument approach. So I touched down and I didn't know it because it was the upwind wing. But my tire blew as soon as I touched down. The Left tire blew. I didn't feel it normally. If you, I don't know if you've ever had a blown tire, but you feel it right away. You know, just flopping away, and it just feels really weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I had no sense that anything was wrong with the airplane. And in the F-5, unlike most Navy airplanes, you aerobrake for a while. So you keep the nose up, and you just kind of let the, the aerodynamics of keeping the nose up and the right. drag there uh, slow the airplane down to about 100 knots, drop the nose down, and uh, and then start putting the brakes on. Uh, well, when I put the nose down at about 4,500 feet remaining, I put my foot on the brakes, and my left foot went all the way to the floor. Uh, and
0: So the brake lines the were bra- probably severed.
1: It was gone. There was all nothing right. there. Uh, and I was too slow to take off again Uh-oh. and there was no long field gear. I put, couldn't pull the chute because of the crosswind. I would have weather veined into the you know the nose into the wind and rolled okay. uh, And so and this plane was an E it wasn't an N so there was no anti skid. Oh gosh. So I started putting you know the, as much pressure as I could on the right brake to start slowing down and it quickly overheated and blew. And so oh. now I'm skidding on two, metal wheels. <laughs> rolling. Not ideal. Not ideal. Uh, going down the runway, sort of very slowly, painfully slowing down. And uh, it, was, it was my birthday. And my wife was throwing a party for me. It just keeps getting better. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was a great day. <laughs> uh, and I remember as I, you know, as I passed the last taxiway, I was doing about 30 knots, and I'm like, uh, I could probably do it. But, you know, the plane, like the the, uh, the wheels were sort of sliding around sure. a little bit. I was keeping it straight with the nose wheel steering. But it, it definitely wanted to skid around. And I, th- I figured if I tried to make that last taxiway, I'd, I'd start doing donuts. Mm-hmm. So I was going off. Straight off into the gravel, and I shut the engines down. And I was so ticked off because I was thinking, "Man, I'm going to be late for my party. They're going to have to bring tires out from Fallon. It's going <laughs> to take hours." And right as I was about to slide off, uh, I got a little left side slip. The left main mount dug in. The plane kind of heaved up on its side, paused for a second, and then flipped over. And then the canopy glass shattered, and you know the uh, the canopy bow. Uh-huh. Uh, comes down obviously in front of you and it shattered into like these indiana jones jagged pieces razor sharp it bent back cut my neck and stopped and i was upside down with this plexiglass dagger in my neck (laughs) still got a scar
0: (laughs) oh my gosh yeah and uh and oh by the way with engines winding down yeah and uh but fuel and everything else so this isn't where you want to be
1: no yeah and uh I was sitting there upside down. I didn't know it, but my uh, my Comcord cord had gotten disconnected. So when I transmitted, they couldn't hear me, but I could hear Tower. And uh, you know, I was sitting there in shock for a moment, sure. and then I started getting angry. And then Tower goes, "Oh, by the way, Saint 99, you're you're not on fire." And i <laughs> it like snapped me back to reality. Like, holy cow! I better get the hell out of this airplane. But I couldn't. I couldn't get out. I was upside down. I, I tried to climb out, and I, there just wasn't any space. So I was stuck in it for about, I don't know, 15 minutes or so.
0: Wow. What did they finally do? Have to, like, jack the thing up or something? No,
1: they just had to cut that canopy bow. The, okay. the fire guys came
0: out, you yeah. know, from their barbecue, whatever they were doing. And- <laughs> well, they don't want any excitement, but you provided them some. <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes. Okay. So obviously you rebounded from that, both physically and flight status solely? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, gosh, yeah. that is quite a sea story. Yeah, Dang that's a good dude. one. Whatever happened to that airplane? It sat in our
1: hangar for about six months, so I could look out the window, mm-hmm. you know, the window yeah, sure. every day. And uh, they finally uh, put it back together and give it to the Marines. Okay.
0: So was, it flew again. <laughs> it flew again. All right, as did you. Well, yeah. there's a happy ending. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's a, that's a great story. You did say the word ATIS. I don't know if we've ever talked about that. That's just the automated terminal information system. It's a frequency you can dial in, and you can hear what an airport's duty runway is, the weather conditions, and any notices they might want the airmen to know. Like the wind. Like the wind, which sounds like you knew about, but you did your best. Dude, well, wow, that is crazy. Thankfully, you made it out of that okay and back to flying, and the aircraft did too. Uh, Gosh, that is... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was a crazy day. How it was tall like are a you? 6'3".
0: Yeah, so you probably filled up the cockpit pretty much anyway. Yeah. Well, you're lucky you turned out as well as it did. Absolutely. Was there I, I
1: figure if I was going maybe one or two knots faster, that, that yeah. thing would have cut my carotid. Yikes. So it came pretty close.
0: And, but by the time it kind of went up on its wing, you knew that you that you were you were out of the envelope for ejecting at that point.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah yes. I, and I didn't think I had to eject. Like, the, right. it was... It was the slowest speed mishap. You know, it just, it took, it felt like it took forever. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm skidding down the runway on the main mounts, you know, cursing out and doing all this calculus about (laughs) Time compression gives you
0: time to do all that. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So, and then, you know, like I said, when I was going off, I was probably doing 15 knots or so when I went straight off the end, which isn't that fast and I was going pretty straight. So I thought "No, no big deal until I was upside down with it a plexiglass dagger in my throat.
0: And at that point, you'd probably been flying for a while, but you made it out of that without a new call sign too, huh?
1: Well, I would say that that's the closest I ever came. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, with that thing sitting <laughs> in, the, in the hangar yeah. right below the ready room, there was just a limitless call sign derby oh, yes. well, for we six months. Well, we
0: talked before on this show about a gentleman who did, unfortunately, something similar to that in an F-18 and didn't eject. And I think he was able to crawl out, but he ended up with a call sign Sue this yeah. this side up uh, yeah. And so, yes, oh yeah okay. uh, so and they painted his name on the jet later with a little arrow pointing nice. normal up of course so, yeah so you you made it out in a sense unscathed uh, in a sense anyway all right, Paco, Well, that is a great discussion on the F five. Thanks very much. It's still flying, right? VFC thirteen is going to fly this thing for a while.
1: Absolutely, I think it'll fly forever. You okay, know, Marines
0: a, still yeah. fly it, I believe.
1: The Marines fly it. There's two Navy squadrons, one in Key West and one in Fallon, okay. and, then, and the Navy's have one. Uh, sorry, the Marines have one in Yuma.
0: Okay, and then I think some foreign countries, maybe, or are they pretty much washing their hands of it now? I think there's still
1: some foreign countries. Uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier. There's some foreign countries that have fully upgraded the right. radar packages. The the uh, radar warning, cool. the uh, helmet mounted queuing system. So, there's all, right. there's all kinds of modern capabilities on an old airplane.
0: Well, okay, so it's got a bright future. What about you? I mean, you've got a good gig going. What's the future hold for you?
1: Yeah, well, much like with Speed and Angels, um, you know, I love telling the story of the Navy. Uh, and uh, I've got this uh, creative bent that, you know, I, I enjoy and, and can't really get rid of, no matter how much I try. So, I uh, finished my first novel. And hopefully it'll be one in a long series of novels uh, related to naval aviation with okay. the same character uh, throughout. All right. Uh, it's called Lines of the Sky. I don't know if you want me to... <laughs> <laughs> you, you,
0: can, you can promote it as much as you want. I can jump in, though, and say yeah, that go you ahead. did send me an advance copy, which I read mm-hmm. and enjoyed. And to me, I read that before I watched Speed and Angels, and I wish I'd have done it in the other order because they seem somewhat related in the sense of it's a journey, yep. there's the hero's challenge, and the ups and the downs, and the comic relief, all the things any good story needs, Right. and a lot like Kevin Miller's books, who I think you told me you've collaborated with, Yeah. you have taken this world that you and I lived, and told it with a story, and to be fair, stories need to be exciting, so there are some latitudes that you've taken, but... It really does, I think, help tell the story of what we do. And it does it in a plausible manner with some of the tensions that we still deal with today.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So one of the things I really wanted to do is you know, take 20 years of flying in the Navy and mm-hmm. take some of those nuggets, those incredible stories, and, and wrap them up into this book. And almost everything that happens in this book, even the, the crazy things, mm-hmm. actually happen in real life. Right. Almost. Um,
0: well, there's, there's the climax that I think the reader will understand probably hasn't... Well, even
1: that is taken from an actual story. Really? A real story, yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't want to give too much away about the book, but a good friend of mine was an S-3 pilot, and he was conducting an exercise with what he thought was a U.S. Navy submarine. Turned out it was a Chinese submarine. Oh, wow. They got irritated and called in for fighter support, and they actually launched fighters. Uh to to come after uh, you know <laughs> to, to protect their submarine, right holy oh, smokes uh, and unlike my book the uh, you know in, in the real world it got diffused very quickly sure but it was such a great story i mean i remember he told me that it had to have been you know 20 years ago and it just blew me away at the time like holy holy cow this stuff the the tensions level are so high that, you know, poorly managed uh, circumstances can really lead to significant consequences. Well,
0: wow. that's probably as succinct and articulate way to put it as possible. Yeah. And this book, as most books, will be available on Amazon. What was the release date? I mean, you can pre-order it, but what what day is it actually out?
1: Sure, it's available for pre-order now, and it comes out uh, on April 12th. Of
0: 2019. Of 2019, okay. yes. Excellent. Well, we will put a link to the book in our show notes as well as feature it on our shop page in the book section and yes i recommend it if people liked hoser's books they'll like yours i think it's right there in the same genre and same excitement level and it sounds like you'll get back to work on another one or maybe you already are working I'm on one i'm starting it yeah the new oh, one's yeah okay. it's starting
1: to buckle down and uh, lash myself to my desk for okay. number 2 so
0: many words per day or a couple pages or something yeah something like lines. that it's All fully
1: right. it's fully outlined which which is great, but it actually you know makes sure. me lazy because I feel like there's not that much pressure. <laughs> I've just got to sit down and write it now. You need to
0: give yourself a deadline. Maybe your your, uh, your editor or publisher probably will take care of that for you.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I actually do have a deadline now that you mention it. So, in you know, I outlined this new book about a year ago, and in this new book, um, the hero ends up in Iran, steals a tomcat, and brings it back to the boat. And I just found out pretty recently. That the next Top Gun movie, something similar happens. Oh,
0: so well, we'll pretend that they got the idea from you.
1: Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it matters. It's a pretty logical, you know, yeah. assumption. Um, but yeah, I feel a certain amount of pressure to get my story out before that the movie uh-huh. comes out.
0: Okay. Well, good luck on that. As far as the rest of the things go, though, with you, I mean, you're going to keep flying the airline gig. Why not? Yeah, Good benefits, good compensation. Yeah. And um, (laughs) all right. So, dude, future is bright for you. And uh, I'm excited for you. And I'm, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. We've been working on this interview for a while. Yeah. I'm happy to promote the book for you the best we can in any future books you write. So just let us know when those are getting close. And we're at the point in the show where normally we talk about the guest's call sign, and we really haven't identified whether Paco is your real name or your call sign or what. So what are you willing to share with us here, Paco?
1: <laughs> I'll share anything. Uh, I, my, my given name is Francesco, Francesco ah. Chirici. And uh, when I was very young, a baby... Some friends of my parents said, oh, Francisco, we'll call him Paco. I think it's a very common uh, diminutive for Francisco in Spanish. Okay. So I got called Paco f- basically from birth. Oh, okay. And everybody in my family calls me Paco. Uh, so when I got in the Navy, you know, they tried a 100 different call signs and I didn't fight it. You know, you can't fight it. The sure. more you fight, the, the, you know, the worse your call sign ends up. And for whatever reason, I just kept ending up with Paco, every squadron I went to, even after <laughs> I crashed the F5, and there were so many options, yeah. it just it it never managed to evolve into an actual call sign. There so I, I feel like I'm one of the few Navy guys that never really wow. got a call sign. <laughs>
0: Well, I have a brother who had a name from birth as well that he's gone by. And I think somehow he even had it put on his driver's license or it's it's an alias or something. But in your case, when you were showing up to a squadron and they would receive the orders on you on the message board ahead of time, it would say Francesco. Francesco, yeah. 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 And so you'd show up and introduce yourself as Paco or something, right? And, yeah. And then it just kind of worked out. Well, that's good. Yeah. It, it kind of suits you. It, it, it fits. I guess it
1: does. I mean, it, <laughs> it must because, uh, you know, here I am five decades later, still being go. called.
0: Awesome. Well, Paco, this has been a very enjoyable discussion, not just because of the fun we've had with the F-5, but because of your background flying the A-6 as well and the F-14. That's pretty cool. And then the Speed and Angels, and now Lions of the Sky. So, dude, you've really done it all. And thank you. Thank you. How many years of service? 20. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, That's wonderful. Yeah. On behalf of the listener, thank you for that.
1: You're very welcome. All right,
0: dude. Well, I think with that then, unless you got any party chats, we can wrap this up and get out of here. No,
1: that was great. Thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. All right. Cheers.
3: Wow, Jello! So he got to fly the MiG twenty eight, huh? That's uh, pretty sweet. So
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
3: uh, what a great yep. interview, man! I just I love the guy's enthusiasm and just uh, that creative aspect that he has that I know I don't have as an engineer. So just really enjoyed the interview. What would you think?
0: Oh, I really enjoyed it. And in fact, he just flew his little personal airplane into a local San Diego airfield recently. And I went and met him and we've already become fast friends. I mean, I'm surprised we didn't know each other anyway. But yeah, just a great dude fits right in and certainly has a heart for telling the story. And again, Paco, thanks for coming on the show. Glad we can help you promote your new book coming out Lions of the Sky. And while I'm thinking about it, let me just say that we will have a link to it in the show notes as well. It will be available on our shop page. And depending on when you're listening to this, if it's in March, or early April of 2019, well, then you can pre-order it. But after, I believe he said, what, April 13th, then it will be available. And then at some point, I guess it would probably be available audio as well. But yeah, really cool. I had a chance to read the book. And I think if people liked Hoser's books, they'll like Paco's book. But anyway, let's get to the big lingering question in my mind, Sunshine. He and I were not aware of the hourglass shape on the fuselage. So please tighten us up on that. Oh,
3: yeah. So in 30 seconds, uh, basically start back post World War II, or just at the end of World War II, 43 to 45, the Germans, while they're looking at swept wing versus W-wing fighters, believe it or not, they came up with, hey, this, this interesting effect of wave drag and happens in the transonic region. Now, fast forward to ninety to fifty-two. Me, 1952, and there was an American engineer uh, who worked for NACA, and his name was Whitcomb, and he came up with this area rule, as they call it, or the transonic area rule. So it's a, it's a way to smooth out... It's a way to Decrease the wave drag in the transonic region, which is roughly 0.75 to 1.2 Mach. Now, the rule says that you want to smooth out the longitudinal distribution of cross sections as easily as possible. So, what I mean by that is when you go from tip to tail, you want to have the increase of cross sectional area be very slow. So, uh, for me, that's still kind of weird to think about. So, imagine Jello, you're in the kitchen and you're going to chop up a carrot. You chop it up into coins, right? So you want the gradual increase of coins to be very non-dramatic or very smooth, if that makes sense. As you're chopping along from nose to tail, those are the cross-sections. You want the cross-sectional changes to be very smooth. If you don't have that, you're going to get an additional amount of wave drag, which is going to make it harder to slip through the number. So, uh, And then one more fact is the Sears hack body. So I tend to think that the ideal shape would be a cigar. And that's kind of been uh, conceptualized by the Sears, by the two engineers, Sears and Hack, and they came up with a Sears Hack body. So the cigar is kind of the traditional way to solve the area rule. But now, when you think of the cross sections, the cross section is going to involve everything from the wing to the control surface to the canopies and all that stuff. Well, if you want to have a gradual increase and then decrease in cross sectional area, and you have really big wings, there has to be a trade off. So you have to have a skinnier fuselage to make up for the longer wings. Because the cross-section is going to involve all the volume or all the area, really, in the wing and the fuselage itself. So if you look at the, um, the 102 Delta Dagger or the 106 Delta Dart or you look at the F5, you'll notice that wasting is going to pretty much show up exactly where the wing is the widest. Does that make sense?
0: Dude. My drool cup is overflowing right now.
3: <laughs> I, just, I just gained consciousness again. Uh, consciousness. <laughs>
0: wait, yeah, I'm back. What just happened? Yeah, exactly. uh, I think so. I think that's a way of saying that because you have some aerodynamic effect at a certain spot on the wing, then you need to make the fuselage smaller in that spot because you want some sort of smoothing and effects there, so it's deliberate for that reason. Is that yeah. fair?
3: Fair enough, man. It's all about the
0: cross-sectional area. You got it. Cross-sectional area. Okay. Wow. See, that's why you're on the show. I'm telling you. Okay. Well, let's see. What were we saying? Oh, yes. We were filling in some blanks on that. Uh, The other thing was he and I kind of debated a little bit, some of the different radars. And so, yes, the F-16 does have the APG-68, which replaced the earlier APG-66. And from some research I did, some F-5 upgrades will feature the APG-69 eventually. Also, there are indeed F five demonstration teams, it looks like in the Netherlands, the Philippines, Switzerland, and Turkey. And also that article we mentioned, it's called Flying with the Aggressors. We'll leave a link to that in the show notes because that's a really, really great article. In fact, I don't know if I sent it to you or not, Sunshine, but I should because it's got some great stories about the F fives and it's got some firsthand account of when they were filming Top Gun. So really great little article.
3: Very cool. Oh, hey, Angelo, you know what? So Paco, I know Paco admitted he's not an aero engineer, but the dude's obviously a very smart guy. So he nailed pretty much all the aero. Just uh, one little misspeak. That is, you guys both mentioned a VN diagram, which would be velocity and normal force or load factor. And when they're doing those comparison charts of capabilities, they actually use the EM diagram. So that would be energy and maneuverability diagrams. Ah,
0: EM, not VM.
3: Not not Victor November, but Echo Mike. You got it.
0: Okay, gotcha. So we were talking about the right chart. We just didn't call it the right name.
3: Spot on, spot on.
0: Okay. Well, me a couple on that. As the listeners know, we are not error proof on this show, but we always come back and fix them.
3: True that. And the VN diagrams are very uh, useful, also for lift, for uh, sorry, lift limits, also and corner air speeds.
0: Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, as always, we have any new acronyms and terms that you might have heard on the interview available on the glossary section of our website. And if you can't find that too easily, just go to the upper right corner where there's those three little lines. Sometimes they're called the hamburger. Click on that and you can find the glossary as well as everything else on our website. Sunshine, I don't know, man. What else?
3: I think that's really about it. Uh, Should we tell the listeners about our next deep dive?
0: Well, what do we know about our next Deep Dive? This has kind of become your project, so what can you share with us?
3: Yeah, so uh, uh, the engineer here is going to dive into the Top Gun realm, and then I'm going to introduce some BFM, or basic fighter maneuvering basics. Allow myself to introduce myself. (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) um, but so I'm going to go through some of the math jello. I'm going to lean on or leverage your expertise in the maneuvering theater or realm, let's say, to uh, put the final touches on this thing. So we're hoping to get that out sometime uh, this, this month and uh, hopefully sooner than later.
0: That sounds good. Well, this month is March of 2019. For those of you listening later, you should be able to find it hopefully on the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube page. And we need to figure out our technology, Sunshine, because it was fun doing it live last time, but we got our butts kicked <laughs> a little bit. So we'll work on that. And you know, we, we and this show both are a work in progress. And the listeners have been very generous with that. They've been growing alongside us as we continue to elevate what we're doing.
3: I totally agree. Thank you for your grace there, listeners.
0: For sure. Well, I want to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So I think that will do it for this episode, Sunshine. What do we always say?
3: Let's
2: get out of here. Let's do it. See you. See you. You've been listening to the fighter pilot podcast brought to you by BVR productions. Got a question for the show, send an email to questions at fighter podcast.com or leave us a message on our listener line at eight seven seven mach one Oh one that's eight seven seven six two two four one zero one. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive fighter pilot podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.
0: Hey, just real quick before you go, I realized we had some audio challenges on Sunshine's side of the interview there, but we figured it out too late. So our regrets, and I know you'll give us a little grace for that. Also, if you enjoyed Paco, There is bonus content available on our Patreon page, so head on over and check it out. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow-ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.